All right. Well, guys, welcome. Grab your Bibles. We're going through the book of First Kings, so um, we're going to pick up that study. I missed a couple of them while in Russia, and um, so I had to kind of catch up, and, and I'm in chapter 15 tonight, so we're going to tackle that. First Kings chapter 15. Austin, that's in the Old Testament, just so you know. Just kidding. <laughs> First Kings, <laughs> First Kings chapter 15, why don't we pray once again, and we're just going to jump right in. Father, we thank you for your word, and Lord, it's always an awesome thing that we take for granted. I do, I, I admit it, I take for granted often that the magnitude of what we're actually doing, that we're opening freely in front of us the actual word of God, the inspired, inerrant, authoritative word of God, and we don't want to approach it uh, half-heartedly. Uh, we don't want to approach it like a buffet where we'll just take what we want and leave what we don't. We want to just have everything that you want for our lives, and we want your word to have the final authority. So feed our souls, draw us into Jesus, and Lord, we just give you tonight, in Jesus' name we pray, amen. Amen. So chapter 15 of the book of First Kings, and um, I, I'm looking around, I think most of us have been uh, going through this particular study of, of First Kings, uh, but just to kind of prime the pump a little bit to remind us that um, a civil war occurred uh, in the kingdom after the death of Solomon, and there was this split that we went through and looked at where um, this, the nation, you know, by and large ended up splitting into two. Uh, the two sides were the north, which is referred to as Israel, and the south, which is referred to as Judah. And so what we're doing as we go through the book of First Kings, it's this historical account of what happened under the rule of those kings. And so as you go through it, maybe one chapter or a half a chapter will deal with a king from the north, and then it'll plop down and start talking about a king uh, from the south. And it can get a little confusing. How many of you guys were confused first time you read through First Kings or Chronicles? It's so you have to kind of keep track of that. And then to, you know, to boot, a lot of times the names are similar. So you're like, what in the world? But all that to say is we're going to be looking at four kings tonight, two in the south, two in the north. Actually, we're going to be kind of introduced to one at the end, and he'll actually take us down uh, into chapter uh, 16. As you probably know by the other teachers, during the whole history of the northern kingdom, Israel, there was not one good king in the whole bunch. Every one of them turned their back on God and led the country further and further away uh, from God and into idolatry. And it started with a guy named Jeroboam, and we'll hear about him tonight a little bit more. He's actually still on the throne. And then in the south, it was kind of a mixed bag. You had some kings that were really good, but a lot that were really bad. And so it's just kind of this back and forth. So let's go ahead and pick it up. Um, chapter 15, verse 1. In verses 1 through 8, we're going to be dealing with um, a king by the name of Abijam. Uh, so let's look at this. It says, Now, in the 18th year of King Jeroboam, that is the guy in the north, the sons of Nebat, Abijam, began to reign over Judah, that is, uh, in the south. Verse 2. He reigned for three years in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Maaka, the daughter of Abishalom, and that's just a variance, by the way, of the name of Absalom. 
and he walked in all this. Listen to verse 3. It's kind of important for his particular story. He walked in all of the sins that his father did before him, and his heart was not wholly true to the Lord his God as the heart of uh, David his father. Nevertheless, for David's sake, the Lord God gave him a lamp in Jerusalem, setting up his son after him and establishing Jerusalem because David did what was right in the eyes of the Lord and did not turn aside from everything that he commanded him in all of the days of his life, except for the matter of Uriah the Hittite, that little incident. So we'll just pause there for a second. Abijam, uh, this guy, notice what it says in verse 2. He reigned for three years. Um, his mother's name goes through that. Verse 3, rather, excuse me. He walked in all the sins that his father did before him, and his heart was not fully true to the Lord his God. I I've said it before. I'll probably say it again before this study is out. One of the things that early on in my life when I began reading the Bible that always just hooked me into these stories was the divine um, evaluation of what God thought about each one of these kings, and it's usually summed up in, in one sentence. So-and-so did that which was either right or did what was evil in the eyes of the Lord. And, and it's always just kind of, for me, what that always does is it brings it back down to brass tacks. Like, you know what, when it's all said and done, did your life, was your life lived for God or was, it, was your life lived for something else? And so this first king that we're looking at tonight he did not have a heart that was after God. In verse 3, I've, I've read it twice, but I'll mention it again. It said he walked in all the sins of his father, his father Rehoboam, who it says, by the way, at the end of chapter 14, his dad got involved in some pretty bad stuff. And back in chapter 14, verse 23, it says, they built for themselves high places and pillars and asherim on every high hill under every green tree. They went also, um, there were also male cult prostitutes in the land. They did according to all the abominations of the nations that the Lord drove out before the people of Israel. That, that's really one of the saddest commentaries when you're reading about God's people. They went back and they started acting like the nations that were in the land that God was hoping they would get driven out. They were driven out of the land because they had so completely turned their back on God and gone so far away in morality in every which way. It was just disgusting and gross and, and all of that. And then God's people came in and got sucked right back into the very things that the world was doing. And that's, man, that's always for us as believers that we have to be on guard. That's always going to be the pull is to let the culture around us and the world around us always wants to pull us back into that way of thinking, Right? And so that's what happened here. And they were just full on going for it. Abijam was involved in all of this stuff, this idol worship and sexual practices that were crazy. And he took the nation into that. Then it says that, um, but because of David, but because of David, even though David blew it in some extreme ways, the thing that David had going for him is when he knew that he was wrong, what did he do? He repented. And he gave his heart back to the Lord. He said, God, he didn't hide it. He didn't try to, you know, he didn't try to like, well, he did try to cover it up. But once he was blown, he just was like, you know what? I'm owning it. He never went off into idolatry. He just went off into his flesh. But he just always came back to just his relationship with God. Whereas these guys, 
they are just going after other gods. But for David's sake, and I find that interesting, I don't know if I have a comment on it, but I find it interesting that for David's sake, because God made a promise to David that through him there would be one sitting on the throne, God's faithful, even though Abijam's a total idiot. Verse 6. Now there was war between Rehoboam and Jeroboam all the days of his life. The rest of the acts of Abijam and all that he did, are they not written in the book of the Chronicles of the Kings of Judah? And we'll pause there for a second. wanted to mention this early, earlier. The, the answer to that question is yes. There's more information about Abijam written in the, the, the Chronicles of the Kings of Judah. We have those books. They're called First and Second Chronicles. And if, by the way, you want to jot down the kings that we're looking at tonight, much more of their story is un unveiled for us in chapters 13, 14, 15, and 16 of Second Chronicles. I'm going to refer, uh, kind of dabble a little bit, but I'm not going to like fully combine them. We'll just kind of get to it when we get to it. Um, now look at this next verse. This is what I want to pull out about Abijam. It says, And there was war between Abijam and Jeroboam, and, Ab and Abijam slept with his fathers, and they buried him in the city of David. And Asa, his son, um, reigned in his place. The thing that kind of stuck out to me about Abijam, um, obviously he was a bad king, bad example, full of sin. But notice what it says, And there was war between Abijam and Jeroboam. And I, kinda, I went back to Second Chronicles 13, and I was just kind of reading his story. And it's really fascinating because... Remember, Jerob Jeroboam's in the north, bad king. Abijam's in the south. They're at odds during his whole reign. But there's, in the Chronicles, it chronicles for us one of these major battles that they had between them. And it's interesting because in this particular battle, Jeroboam in the north outnumbers Abijam in the south 800,000 soldiers to 400,000 soldiers. And they're kind of surrounding him. But Abijam gets up there, and he just gives this epic, like, Braveheart-style speech um, to the armies of Jeroboam, which, and by the way, they end up beating them, even though they were outnumbered two to one. But this is what kind of fascinated me about this, is here's Abijam, the guy that we just read about. This is part of his speech to the king Jeroboam. He says, in the heat of this battle that was about to go down, he says, and now you think to withstand the kingdom of the Lord in the hand of the sons of David because you're great in multitude and you have golden calves that Jeroboam made for you as gods? Have you not driven out the priests of the Lord, the sons of Aaron and the Levites and the priests yourselves like people in the land? Whoever comes for ordination with a young bull or seven rams becomes a priest of what are not gods. He's, he's basically saying, you guys have completely turned away from God. You make priests out of everybody. You worship little golden calves. He says, but as for us, the Lord is our God, and we have not forsaken him. We have priests ministering to the Lord, who are the sons of Aaron. And every evening, burnt offerings and incense and sweet spices um, are set out in the showbread, and there's, um, it goes on the care of the golden lampstands, and um, the lamps are burning every evening, for we keep the charge of the Lord our God, but you have forsaken him. Behold, God is with us at our head, and his priests are with their, and it goes on and on. But what cracked me up about this is he's right. Abijam was like, you guys are coming against us, Jeroboam, but you guys have forsaken God. And you got your little golden calves, and you make priests out of everybody. But guess what? We got Aaron, and he's got his priesthood. And we got the temple. 
or yeah, the temple. And we've got all the golden lampstands. And we do morning and evening worship ceremonies. And we have, we're doing it right. You're doing it wrong. God is with us. You're going down. And he was right. The battle goes on. Abijam outnumbered two to one. They beat him. But here's what kind of got me about that. He talks a great game. Abijam, he talks a great game, doesn't he? We're on God's side. We haven't forsaken God. We have the priests. We're doing all the religious stuff. But what did it say? What was the divine commentary about him? He walked in all the ways of his father and all the sins of his father. In other words, he talked one way, but he walked another way. Classic example, and it just really kind of underscores the point that Pastor Steve made this morning about Lot. Here's Lot, who is righteous. He was a good man. And when it came, that's the point that got me this morning. Was when it came time to warn and talk about godly things to his kids, he had, not, he had no ground to stand on because he talked one way, but his lifestyle was completely different. And isn't that just a reminder for us? It doesn't matter, and listen, it doesn't matter how religious you are and how much you come to church and how good of a game you can use, all the God language you want to use. But at the end of the day, it's all about your walk. It's about are you actually walking with God or are you just going through the motions of religion? And what there is here is this complete and utter disconnect between religion and relationship with God. And we better be careful. Don't think for one second that we can get immune to that. It might look different. It may not be a temple or a high church, Catholic, Lutheran, Protestant, you know, Presbyterian. We can get very religious in Calvary Chapel. Did you know that? We can come in and do our five songs, 40-minute sermon, ending song prayer, and we say we're non-religious, and we're religious to the T. I'm not saying that's bad at all. It's not it's okay to have an order of service. But we are just as susceptible to anybody else of just learning, just going through the motions and talking a good game but not really actually living out our faith. And so maybe a good warning from the life of Abijam who talked a good game but walked something completely different, and it proves to be a bad ending for him. Well, let's go to chapter 15, verse 9. He's kind of the hero of this, uh, of this chapter for sure. It says at the end of verse 8, And Asa, his son, uh, reigned in his place. Asa is a guy, before I start reading, who gets a lot of ink in the Bible. He gets a big chunk of this chapter. And then in Second Chronicles, he gets chapter 14, 15, 16. He gets a lot of coverage. And he goes down as one of the greatest kings that the southern kingdom ever had. He ruled a long time. We'll look at that. He actually is one of the five reformers that the southern kingdom have. He brought real, true, legitimate reformation uh, to a, a sinful and apostate country at that time. And so let's look at his story a little bit, um, some of his um, highs and lows. It says in verse 9, Now in the 20th year of Jeroboam, the king of Israel, Asa began to reign over Judah. And he reigned for 41 years. Can you imagine that? Same, someone in office for 41 years? 41 years of Jerusalem. That's almost as old as I am. That's crazy. His mother's name was Maacah, the daughter of Absalom. Uh, or Absalom. The, uh, and Asa did what was right in the eyes of the Lord as David his father had done. He put away all the male cult prostitutes out of the land. He removed all the idols that his father had made. 
He removed Maaka, his mother, from being queen mother because she had made an abominable image of Asherah. And Asa cut down her image and burned it at the brook Kidron. But the high places were not taken away. Nevertheless, the heart of Asa was wholly true to the Lord all his days. And he brought into the house of the Lord sacred gifts of his father and all uh, his own um, of his father and his own sacred gifts, silver and gold and, uh, vessels. So Asa, classic guy. Again, here's the divine evaluation. His heart was true, wholly true to the Lord all the days of his life. Now we're going to see Asa didn't get it right 100%, but his heart was right towards the Lord. A couple little things, just little points of reference. Um, it said he reigned for 41 years. What we just read was part of his um, part of his reforms. And the way that it plays out when you put together Chronicles and Kings, um, it seems as though for the first 10 years of his reign, he had complete peace. And he did some reforms during that time. He, he had a righteous heart, and he was trying to get things right in the kingdom. But then something very significant happened in the 10th year of his reign. Egypt mounted an attack against them. And I'll, I'll let you read the details in Chronicles, but uh, the, the, the main thing you want to come away with is this. Egypt mustered a million-man army against Asa. A million people. A million soldiers. And then I think his soldiers were like less than 600,000, and, and you get all the stats when you read it. But the point is, he was absolutely, completely, 100% outgunned, outnumbered, out everything by the Egyptians, and they were coming for blood. And Asa cries out to God, looks to God for help. Long story short, God totally delivers him. Amen? After that time, the prophet Abijah comes to him and encourages him and says, as long as you're with God, God is with you. And, and I'm kind of summarizing the story. Again, it's a good read, but um, his heart gets all encouraged and he gets all stoked. And, and that was like a, another opportunity. And he just goes hard in the paint. He absolutely starts ripping down all the idols. That's kind of what we're reading right here is probably the second uh, wave of reforms that Asa made. And I don't know about you, but these, these are pretty significant. It says that, note the words here. It says he put away, he removed, he removed, he removed. Whether you're talking about a reformation in a church, a reformation in a soul, or reformation in a nation, it kind of starts oftentimes, doesn't it, with what you remove. There's got to be a removal, a repent, what that's called repentance, where you not only change your mind, but it's a change of mind that leads to actions, and you say, no more of this. I'm not going to keep a little bit on the side or whatever. We're ripping this idol down. We're removing it from the land completely. And that takes guts. Did you notice he, he removed his own mom? She had become like the queen mother, and she had gotten sucked into this idolatrous act with Asherah poles, which were basically, well, there's a little confusion on exactly what they were, but they were definitely connected with the Canaanite fertility goddesses. All of this is connected to like temple prostitutes and male and female prostitution and how you would worship in that. And it was all this kind of sick, twisted stuff. And it was very culturally accepted. It had kind of made its way into God's people. And his mom got, and he removed his own mom. How many of you guys know when you start walking with Jesus, sometimes it's your own family that thinks you're like the weirdest people on the face of the earth. 
And you know what? He didn't care. He was just going for it. And I really applaud him. These are, you know, we kind of skim over this. But you have to understand that he was going against the grain of what was popular and accepted. And I'll tell you this, even in the church, sometimes God will stir up your heart. And he'll say, no more movies like that. I know everybody else in the church is watching those movies. You don't watch those anymore, Jason. I know everybody else watches that sitcom. That's not for you because I don't like the way they're joking about sex in that sitcom, and it's, it, it grieves my heart, Jason. I don't want you to watch that. I know everybody else does this, even in the church. But you need to remove it out of your life. That's the beauty of the new covenant, by the way. The Holy Spirit writes on the table of our hearts what's good for us. If it's not black and white, he, you know, we can go by the black and white. But if it's not black and white, the Holy Spirit just writes on your heart. We don't need laws. We don't need rules anymore. We're, we're free from that. Amen? We have the law of the Spirit in life. But he will sometimes say to you and to me, I know everybody else, and it's accepted in the culture, even church culture, but you need to remove it out of your life. And I encourage you, if God has called you to do that, do it. Even if you get pushback, even if Christians, and this happens and it's sad, other Christians, oh, you really, you're just repenting, you're going for it, and they'll mock you. But you obey the Lord, and if God is wanting to do reforms in your life, who cares what any other Christian or any other person has to say about it? You obey the Lord, and you, if you need to remove stuff, remove it. And if you need to say no and everybody's going to that movie or everybody's doing that thing, but God has put in your heart not to do it, don't do it. Don't judge them, but you obey what the Holy Spirit has put on your heart to do. Amen? I don't really have that in my notes, so that's a freebie for you. Take it if you want it. But let's keep moving. All that to say is he, he went on these reforms. Now, what we have next is going to be this. Uh, it's interesting because of all of the things that are listed in, in, in Asa's life in, in, the, in the book of Chronicles, this one battle is listed for us in Kings. And this is all really that's included. And I want to talk about this. Let's just read it through. It's pretty self-explanatory. Verse 16. Now, there was a war. This happened, by the way, after the Egyptian thing, after the Reformation, towards the end of his reign. There was a, ro- a war between Asa and Baasha. Now, we haven't been introduced to him yet. He's not uh, chronologically a king yet, but we'll see how he, he comes into play here in a little bit. But there was war between Asa and Baasha, the king of Israel, all their days. And Baasha, king of Israel, went up against Judah. And he built Ramah, that he might permit no one to go out or come in into Asa, king of Judah. Now pause there for a second. There's this new king in the north, bad king, Baasha. We'll get more of him at the end in the next week. He comes down and starts bolstering this city called uh, Ramah. And what's significant about that, it's about four and a half, five miles north of Jerusalem on the major highway. And it says right there what his motive was. He was going to control the traffic. He wasn't going to let people go down into Judah. He was trying to keep people up in the north and, and ha- hold their power. He's restricting traffic. He's, and he's really encroaching really closely into Judah's territory. And this is just very... Uh, Prerogative, or prerogative, that's not the right word. Um, what's the word I'm looking for? It starts with a P. Provocative. It's, prerog- it's his prerogative, but it's also provocative. <laughs> Anyways, um, it's like an act of war. That's kind of what I was getting at. 
Well, this is what happens. In verse 18, it says, Asa took all the silver and all the gold that were left in the treasures of the house of the Lord and the treasures of the king's house, and he gave them into the hands of his servants, and King Asa sent them to Ben-Hadad, the son of Tambourine, or Tambramon, the son of Hezion, king of Syria, who lived in Damascus, saying, Let there be a covenant between me and you, as there was between my father and your father. Behold, I'm sending you a present, silver and gold. Now go break your covenant with Baasha, king of Israel, that he may withdraw from me. Well, Ben-Hadad listened to the king Asa and sent the commanders of his armies against the cities of Israel and conquered Ihon and Dan, Abel, Beth, Maaka, and all of Chinneroth with all the lands of Naphtali. Verse 21. Now when Baasha heard of it, he stopped building Ramah and he lived in Tirzah. Then King Asa made a proclamation to all of Judah. None was exempt. And they carried away all the stones of Ramah and its timber, which Baasha had been building with them. Uh, King Asa built Geba and Benjamin and Mizpah. Now the rest of the acts of Asa and all his might and all that he did and all the cities he built, were they not written in the book of the Chronicles of the kings of Judah? Again, the answer to that is yes. But in his old age, he was diseased in his feet. Now that's an interesting verse. We'll get to it in a second. Asa slept with his fathers, and he was buried with his fathers in the city of David, uh, his father, and Jehoshaphat, his son, uh, reigned in his place. Now this, I read that all together so he could hear it, but don't lose me. This is a very interesting thing that happens. But Asha gets this idea, starts rebuilding Ramah, trying to control the traffic. It's a very um, aggressive move. What does Asa do? He's in trouble. What's going to happen? What am I going to do? He gets this great idea. I know what I'll do. I'm going to get all the money out of the temple. And he gets all the money. And then he gets the king's treasury. He gets all that money. He sends it to Ben-Hadad and says, hey, remember? Hey, we got history, man. Your dad, my dad, they were allies. Why don't we kind of rekindle that ally thing? And plus, here's a buttload of money. Here's a lot of money. And he's like, yeah, the ally thing's a good idea. Money, you know, and like just takes the money. And the idea was, I'm paying this guy off so he will break his alliance because at the time, Ben-Hadad of Syria was aligned with Israel in the north. He pays him off. He breaks his, his, um, his treaty or, or his uh, connection with Israel. And he sides with Judah. And then you, you see what happens? Like, they get the upper hand. Judah goes in and, like, takes all the stuff that they were using for building material, builds other cities. Bottom line, it worked. That's a great plan. We'll come back to that in a minute. Did you notice at the end of this it says that Asa, in his old age, was diseased in his feet? Not in it. Like, oh, thanks for that. There's more to the story. Again, at the end of Chronicles, it says he was diseased in his feet, but he refused to call out to God, and he just relied on the doctors, and it's, that is not a biblical thing saying anything against doctors. The point is, is that he refused to call out to God, and the idea being that God probably would have healed him, but he trusted in the doctors. And the reason those two stories are connected is because that's kind of what sums up Asa's life, unfortunately, that's how he ended his life. You see, when he got back from the battle, the not, no battle at all, actually, when he just got done 
implementing his plan to pay off Ben-Hadad and break the treaty and do all this stuff, a prophet came to him and said, and I'm summing this up. Go back and read it, chapter 16. Basically, you did what was wrong, Asa. Was it, could you, you couldn't trust the Lord? Was the Lord not on your side? You couldn't call out to him? Here's the point. He said, when you were invaded by Egypt with a million people against you, completely outnumbered, you cried out to God and he helped you. And a smaller problem arose, but you just handled it. You were very self-reliant and you were really good and you manipulated the situation and you did your thing instead of relying on God. And then, the same thing happened with his feet. And the point, the whole point is, what sums up Asa's life at the end is a life, by the way, you know what he did to that prophet that, that called him on the carpet? He had him arrested <laughs> and beaten. Asa's just not really in a good place at that point. And by the way, this is where we find the famous verse. This is the context of the famous verse, one of my favorite verses in the Bible, actually, that says this. The eyes of the Lord run to and fro throughout the whole earth to give strong support support to those whose heart is blameless towards him. And the rest of the verse says, you have done foolishly in this, and from now on you're going to have wars. We never quote the last part of that verse because it has to do with the context. But he said, you've done foolishly. And guys, go back to that verse for a second. What is it saying? God declares to this prophet, God is literally looking around to and fro throughout the whole earth, trying to find people whose hearts are perfect. And the word perfect doesn't mean um, like morally perfect or absolutely never makes a mistake. The idea is whole. Like the whole of their heart is that they just trust God and they rely on God. But what he did is he relied on himself and his ability and his power. And God says, that was foolish. I would have done so much more. And so, how does that apply to you and I tonight? Because I think this is very, very, you know, I, this was written a long time ago, but this is very applicable to our lives. Yes or no? How many of you guys have noticed that when you're young in the Lord and you come up against a big problem, you just don't know any better. You just trust God. You're like, well, I guess he's just God and he can do stuff. And you call out to God and guess what? He does stuff. But then when you get older in the Lord and you've gone through some seminary courses or Bible studies and you kind of understand the Bible and you understand God a little bit more and you come up against a problem and you're like, I got this. There's something weird that happens in us that can. It doesn't have to, but it does, unfortunately. Sometimes as we get older in, our, in the Lord, our faith can actually shrink a little bit. And we can start relying on our own ability to fix a situation. Usually it's by throwing money at it first, right? Throw money at it. Oh, I know what to do. I'll get on the phone. I'll call so-and-so who knows so-and-so, and they'll work the deal on the back end, and we'll get this thing handled. We're all manipulated like this and this, and, and then it seems like once we've just exhausted all of our resources, then we'll go like, oh, God, will you help us? He's like, "Where? I have been waiting for that. Oh, that we would learn to stop being so self-reliant. And, and there's something, I don't know if it's the, the American in me or what, but I don't know why I use a southern accent when I say American, but um, I don't know if it's like that, well, we're Americans, and American ends, and I can, and, you know, and maybe it's just kind of ingrained into us that we, you know, like it's respectable to kind of pull yourself up by your bootstraps and make it happen, and, and that might be a great thing 
as far as Americans go. But you know what? God's not real impressed with that. God doesn't take pleasure in the legs of a man, the Bible says, or in horses. He takes pleasure in those who trust in his unfailing love. God likes it when we come and just say, I don't know what to do. I am tempted just to rely on my ability to manipulate because I'm a pretty, pretty capable person. But God, I'm going to look to you instead. I'm not going to lean on my own understanding, but in all my ways, I'm going to acknowledge you and let you direct my paths. Amen? What are you going through tonight? Right now in your life, big or small, what is the thing in your life right now where the temptation is for you to just make it happen or handle it? Can I encourage you to, to learn a lesson from Asa? Rely on the Lord. Go first to him and say, God, how do you want to handle this situation? Amen? I really believe that that is a word for somebody. It's probably a word for everybody at some time, but at this time, it's a word for somebody. <laughs> Somebody's got that, needs that one tonight. Don't rely on yourself. Stop it. Stop manipulating. Stop grinding. Just let God do it. Amen? Well, let's end. It goes on First uh, Kings. We're just going to kind of blitzkrieg through this. It says in verse 25 now, Nadab, the son of Jeroboam. Now, now we're back to the north. By the way, he was, he was a king for over 20 years, like a bad king for 20 years. Nadab, the son of Jeroboam, began to reign over Israel in the second year of Asa, king of Judah. So you can do the math. He reigned over Israel for two years, this Nadab guy. He did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, and he walked in all of the ways of his father and in his sin, which made Israel to sin. I don't know if any of the teachers have pointed this out yet, but every time Jeroboam from now on is referred to, guess what tag, guess what hashtag comes after his name? The guy that caused Israel to sin. How would you like to live with that for the rest of eternity? That is connected to this name, the one who made Israel to sin. Oh, Jeroboam, oh yeah, the one who made Israel to sin. Like he, it's a sad commentary. I'll, maybe I'll mention more why that is in a second, but verse 27. Now, Baasha, this is the guy that we, we were kind of heard about earlier. This is where he comes in. Baasha, the son of Ahijah, of the house of Issachar, conspired against him, and Baasha struck him down at Gibbethon, um, which belonged to the Philistines. Now Nadab and all of Israel were laying in siege at Gibbethon. So Baasha killed him in the third year of Asa, king of Judah, and reigned in his place. So this guy was conspired against. He didn't last long, two quick years. Uh, Baasha offs him, and now look at verse 29. As soon as he was king, he killed all the house of Jeroboam. He left uh, to the house of Jeroboam no one that breathed until he had destroyed it according to the word of the Lord that was spoken by the servant Ahijah the Shilonite. Do you guys remember that? It's a throwback, a couple chapters, I think chapter 14, actually, where Jeroboam, who, by the way, I think Pastor Steve pointed this out, Jeroboam had an amazing opportunity. God made a promise, like, if you'll walk in my ways, he was, like, holding him up there alongside David. But instead, he, like, went the opposite direction. And because of that, and because of causing Israel to sin, basically the prophet comes to him and says, you know, you, the baby that you guys are having right now is the only one that's going to get buried in a grave. The rest, they're just going to die out in the field, and your whole family's going to get 
destroyed. And that's exactly what happened. His whole family is absolutely obliterated. Verse 30, it was for the sins of Jeroboam that, sin, that he sinned and all that he had made Israel to sin because of the anger to which he provoked the Lord, the God of Israel. There it is again, verse 31. Now the rest of the acts of Nadab, all that he did, are they not written in the book of the Chronicles of the kings of Israel? And the answer to that is they probably are, but I don't know, we don't have that book. And there was a war between Asa and Baasha, the king, all the days, excuse me, all of their days. Verse 33 in the third year of Asa, king of Judah, Baasha, the son of Ahijah, uh, reigned over Israel at Tirzah, and he reigned 24 years. He did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, and he walked in the way of Jeroboam and in the sin which he caused Israel to sin. So we're going to stop there tonight, and when um, next week when we pick it back up, I think Pastor Steve's got next week, um, it's going to continue his story, and we'll kind of see how the saga continues, but... For tonight, you know, how's the Lord spoken to you? You know, you go through these stories and half the time you're scratching your head. And by the way, am I the only one that when you go through this, you're like, can we just get one? Like one good one? I mean, Asa's good, but why does it have to have like that tag at the end where he like doesn't trust God and gets rung up by the prophet? And like, don't you kind of just root when you read this? Like root for, maybe, maybe this time when I read it through, we'll find a, we'll find a good one all the way through. And guess what? It never happens. And this may sound real surfacey or just like kind of a surface level application, but I'm going to say it anyway. You know what that kind of reminded me of as I'm going through like scouring the pages? Can't we just get one good king who doesn't screw up in some way at the end? And the answer is going to be no. You're not going to read that. You know why? They're men. And they're politicians. And they're they're human. And again, I don't mean to sound trite or, you know, like flippant about this. I'm dead serious. I am so glad. Coming into an another election year that our hope is not pinned on a political leader. Can I get an amen? <laughs> I don't care what party. It's not Republican. It's not Democrat. You know, I just came back from Russia, who has a whole different legacy of leaders. Mostly bad. <laughs> and a lot of problems. And it's, you know what? I don't care what country, I don't care what era in history. Haven't we learned by now? It's never, ever, ever going to be through a political leader that all the problems are solved until, listen, until the day until the day the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords returns to earth, that is going to be the only time when things are made right. And they will be made right. Amen? And so we're longing for that day. And I think we should participate, by the way, in the political process and all of that. But it, very, it saddens me very much to read Facebook, to read all these posts, read this stuff, which I don't even really do anymore, but just to see all the venom and all the fumes and all the th stuff that comes out of the church. I'm not saying we can't be involved or have an opinion, but I think sometimes we forget our goal is not to convince people of our political stance or even to reform people through political stuff. 
Real reformation happens when a life is altered by Jesus Christ and turned inside out and upside down. That's how real change happens, one soul at a time. Again, not that we shouldn't be involved, not that we shouldn't do our part. We, we must actually do our part. We must. But can we make a pinky promise going into this next election here? Not to act like idiots. Not to lose our head. Not to forget that we are looking to Jesus as our King, and King, uh, King of kings and Lord of lords. And if we find ourselves all balled up in those arguments, we are fighting the wrong battle. Oftentimes we're pigeonholing ourselves and not opening up a door to talk about Jesus because now they don't want to hear it. Now I'm ranting a little bit, so I'm going to be quiet. But may God, by his Holy Spirit, make application for each one of us tonight. Why don't we stand together and we'll pray. Father, we thank you for your grace so many lessons from these kings and my goodness one lesson is is that though a lot of time goes by not a lot changes and lord men are men people are people and sin is sin and you're still our savior and our hope and oh god help us to glean all that we can and lord we just say again tonight we're pinning our hopes on you we're looking to you to be the righteous king that's going to come and rule someday. We're so thankful, Lord, that you didn't leave us just with no hope. Thank you that you're going to make all things right. Thank you that you're going to rule in righteousness. You're going to correct and judge and establish, and it's going to be perfect. And we are so thankful that we, that we are your people, that you are our king. Let's set our, our hearts on heaven, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Hey, give somebody a hug and a... High five and you guys are dismissed.